Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sorcerer, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all. My name is Greg Bartelson. Thank you. Yeah, that's very nice. Um, (laughs) My wife and I, uh, my wife Yana and I have uh, been here at Grace for a long time. We love this family. We love Grace. And it's just been a joy to go through the Old Testament with you and kind of uh, wrestle with it and figure out what uh, God's trying to communicate with us. And we've reached the end. And so I'm kind of carrying the caboose today, uh, Malachi. Let's get started. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book of his beloved allegorical novel, The Chronicles of Narnia, we learn that the lead protagonist is Aslan, a lion who, according to the book's author, represents Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He is the king in the story. At some point in the narrative, the imminent arrival of the king of all the land is heralded. And there are mixed reactions at just the whisper, the sound of his name. I read from a passage there. Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy, well... Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. You know, how we respond to the sound of someone's name, especially someone of great importance, says a lot about what we think of them, right? How we value them. Well, what goes through your heart and mind this morning 
when you hear the sound of the name Jesus. Jesus. How would you respond and act if you knew he was coming to your house tomorrow? (laughs) Would you greet his appearance with joy and excitement? Or would it be with a fearful heart, anxiety, maybe some trepidation? How would you be preparing for his arrival? Malachi is a prophet who was called to deliver uh, God's last judgment upon the people of Israel. And I believe we ought to listen up and heed the words as well. For us, the 21st century making up the church, the, the people of God, we can learn from Israel's past mistakes and we can know how to best prepare for the glorious return of the king that Malachi speaks of. So a little bit of background. We know little to nothing about the person of Malachi, I mean, whose name translates to my messenger or my angel. He was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. We read about them, right? So that's kind of where we're at there. But uh, we don't know much more about him. I think last week, didn't Pastor Tim say of Habakkuk that he was like a professional breakdancer or something like that? <laughs> I, I think he mentioned something like that. Crazy. Creative thought. I mean, for all I know, Malachi could have been a locksmith or a shepherd. I mean, why not? Maybe he's a, a barista at the local Hebrews hangout. <laughs> That's for you guys. Oh, bad. I assure you, the rest of the I'm not going to be putting you through that. That's, that's, a, that's the most I can do. Um, no, but, but we learned that Israel's past mistakes, we can learn from that and, and prepare for the king. So where do we find the people of Israel at this time? Well, after about 160 years from first being exiled to Babylon, the Jews under Zerubbabel, I'll try to say that three times fast, Zerubbabel, We have a finished temple. They have the teaching of the law resumed in a strengthened community by the coming of Ezra the priest. So we got that. And under Nehemiah, they have the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt for their protection. So Israel, she's good, right? Everything's fine. She's finally learned her lesson, and they're doing fine, right? Nothing could be further from the truth if you've been reading through the the minor prophets and Malachi itself you know that not all is kosher in the city of David. Because in spite of all these blessings, the people are enshrouded in a depressed religious atmosphere. But why? Well, I think they were daily reminded of the following things. First, their land remains but a small province ruled over in the backwaters of the Persian Empire. Not what it used to be. Secondly, the people were experiencing economic adversity. They had pestilence crop failure. There was drought. Third, the glorious future announced by the prophets before him. It just is not coming to pass. Most importantly, their God, their God had not come to his temple with majesty and power as it was in the good old days. To make matters worse, they've turned away from God. And they actually, they actually blame him for their sorry state of affairs. Here's what Malachi says these guys have been up to. Number one, they've been neglecting the tithes and offerings. They're just not bringing it. They bring substandard animals for sacrifice. These were sick and deformed animals to the temple when God expects the best. God expects the best from us. But they kept the best for themselves and said, sure, we'll just throw this thing on the, on the altar there. And the priests were completely fine with it. They neglected the Sabbath and social injustice 
was on the rise. Workers were defrauded of their wages. There was mistreatment of the poor and even the stranger, read here, migrant. The problems, though, the problems they were facing were not the cause of their backsliding and grievance against God. They were the result. So let's begin our look at Malachi, starting with 2.17, and figure out who this messenger is that we're talking about. Starting in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? The people react to the demise of their society by accusing God of just looking the other way. God, you don't even care what's going on in our lives, you know we're present. In fact, God, I think you're, you're okay with it. You give hearty approval of the sin that they're doing and that they get away with it. Let's learn from their mistakes. We know that trusting in God's control over our situation can be very, very difficult, right, when the world seems to be crumbling around you. Last year was a tough year for me, and the world seemed to be crumbling around me with work and stuff like that, but, but I stuck to him because I know he's faithful. Let's, not, let's be careful not to disparage his character by assuming he is weak and that he's indifferent to our struggles or that he's accepting of evil just because we think he is not acting quickly enough. Right? Sometimes we want things to be done so fast. God, when are you going to change things here? Because the truth is, is that God is fair. He's impartial. And he hates injustice. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verses 5-6, through six, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Bottom line, folks, God doesn't miss a thing. He sees what's going on and he is going to correct all wrongs. And, and these people, the, Jerusalem, uh, the Israelites, as they are sinning, the people cried out with one voice, where is the God of justice? Where is he? Well, they're going to get an answer to that question. But are they ready for it? Are they ready for it? The first point on your outline there, and I'll be explaining four points I think that we can pull out from Malachi that are very important for us into preparing for the king. Number one, we should be preparing our hearts to fear the Lord. We cringe when we hear that, fear the Lord. I want to fear God. I'm not afraid of him. Because he brings blessing on those who do, and he brings judgment on those who don't. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you will seek, who you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. When it says the Lord whom you seek, and the messenger of the covenant who you delight, they're not delighting. It's uh, being sarcastic there. They don't delight in the Lord. They're not seeking for him. In the first part of verse 1, the messenger, because it can be kind of a little confusing. There's a messenger here. There's a messenger there. The messenger they're speaking of is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And he's the messenger who prepares the way of the Messiah. You know, in, in ancient times, in the royal procession, it was common for there to be a messenger to go before the king or the emperor to clear the way, to herald his, his coming. And so that's what John the Baptist fulfilled as well for Jesus. 
He fulfilled that. Malachi says that God is sending his messenger and not just another prophet. We're done with the prophets. They faithfully gave the message, but Israel didn't listen. This time, he sends his own son, the king, the lion of Judah. And for us, this is good news for everyone because this event marks the beginning of what we call the gospel. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the requirements of the law that neither you or I or any of the Jews could ever do on their own. Be thankful for that. Jesus is the one who offers forgiveness of sins. It's Jesus who restores our broken relationship with the Father, brings us to him, amen? And it's only through Jesus that we have eternal life. This is the king who is coming. Are you prepared? Let's continue reading, verses two through four. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Why should we fear the king, and what's the purpose of his visit? It's answered in this section here. Number one, his ministry is going to purify his people, the people of God. See, verses two through four talk about the messenger's second coming. The first one was the messenger, Jesus, when he came and he proclaimed he was God. He proclaimed that I'm here to save you from your sins and he died on the cross. The second time he comes, and that's what it's talking about, verses two through four, is the messenger and his job is to bring final judgment on the earth. Paul reminds us of this event in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Every man's work shall be made manifest. That's all of us, every man's. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. This purification is of the faithful remnant of Israel. There is going to be a faithful remnant of Israel one day. And through this purification, ultimately, they're going to become that holy nation that they struggled to become, right, all this time we've been reading about. And, that, and they will become the righteous servant to lead worship of God, who deserves it. And you know, it's the same for us in the sense that as believers today, we go through our life and there's struggles and God works through that to see if we trust in him and put our treasures in him alone, not in what we can get from this world. And it is, the result is that we will become more like Christ, conformed to the image of him. Fuller soap makes things white. We can become white and pure like Christ in our life. And when they, 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 they melt down the, the metal, the dross is drawn away, and all we can see is the reflection. God's doing that with us so that we might reflect Jesus at the end. His ministry will purify the people of God, but also his ministry will bring judgment. Verse 5. Verse 5. <clears throat> then I will draw near to you for judgment. He says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. It reveals that the messenger's judgment does destroy. 
Chapter 4, verse 1 reflects this. But it's against those who claim to know the king, yet actually don't really fear him. And what do I mean by fearing God here? I know I'm bringing this up a lot. I don't want to fear God. It's not the fear in the sense that someone that we run away from because based on their character, they're evil or they're bent on, on, on doing evil things. Uh, it's not the, it, it's, that fear is the fear of them because their character doesn't warrant or, or uh, deserve our, our uh, affections, our allegiance to it. I'm talking about the fear of God, which is a healthy, a biblical fear that is based on what is true about his character. And God is pure, he's just, right? He's merciful and he's loving. And, and based on that, the text is telling us we should fear God because of that. Fearing even um, disparaging his name and accusing him of making life miserable for us. He loves us. The fear of God, which means that we do not want to sin and not have consequences for it. It's to have deep in one's soul a reverent, awe-inspired posture before him. And Israel did not have this fear. My question is, do you fear the Lord this morning? Do we fear him? Do our nation, does our nation, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family members, do they fear the Lord? The king is coming to both purify and judge. What will the state of our hearts be when we meet him? Let's read on, verses six to seven. Six to seven. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Let's look at that for a moment. God declares his love to his people in this magnificent way. God is faithful, faithful to those with whom he makes a covenant. And he declares his unfailing love in this way. He says, Israel, you know what? If, if I am fickle and changing as you claim me to be and not interested in you, did you realize that if I was a fickle God like the gods around you and variable in my promises to you, I could wipe you out? I could easily have destroyed you, and he would have been right to do so based on their conduct. But God says, I don't. I've been so patient waiting for you. And maybe today you're thinking, God, when are you going to change things? My circumstances, these people that commit evil around in our society, are you going to clean house yet? When are you taking so long? Why are you taking so long? And for me, speaking for myself, I'm grateful. I'm thankful that God is not judging me completely right now. I'm not as polished. I should be. Consider chapter 2 of Peter, verses three, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's love. Another awesome example of love is that he calls for his people to repent and return to him. Repent and return to him. Repent is sort of a military term, which means turning 180 degrees away from your destructive life, fearing God in a negative sense, in a pejorative way, and actually turn towards him. Look to him because he is good 
And he promises to envelop you with his arms and take, his, take you back. He says that to us today. That's love. And for those of us who do not know this king that I speak of personally, my prayer is that you make that happen today before the king arrives. For then it will be too late. Today is a day of salvation, scripture tells us. We're not even guaranteed tomorrow. The king is coming. May we all receive him with repentant hearts, turn to him. Now, the second part of verse seven, if you look at that again, this is how Israel responds. But you say, how shall we return? Can you believe the audacity? They're saying, we're, we're all good. Uh, we've been doing what you've asked. How could we come any closer to you, God? You're the one that's left us. Look at what you've left us in. They are blinded. They are completely blinded. They are callous with sin, and they're not even aware of it. And repentance, though, is for everyone, not just the lost who don't know God, who know God. It's for Christians here today, for us. My question for you is, how's your walk with Jesus? How's it going? Are we pursuing holiness of character, or have we slipped into complacency with our worship, allowing sin to purchase residence in our heart? We too need to repent and turn to him for forgiveness. Because as we go throughout the day, you know we, we, we attract, we, we get this muck and mud from the day. And we need to be washed. Yes, we know we're with Christ. But he says, come to me. Admit that you've taken on this and you've sinned. And I'm ready to embrace you. Israel indignantly denies its need for repentance. Israel responds to God to offer with how are we to return let's not let's not ask that question let's return to him the upcoming opportunities for baptism and communion that we're going to have i think are excellent models of how we can the lost and as believers return to him right with communion coming to him and saying lord i've i've sinned against you please cleanse me of that today and for some it's even a chance to begin life anew with him. We look forward to baptism and the communion this morning. Let's continue reading from verses 8 through 10. It says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. I say, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Here, my third point is that we honor God. We honor God properly through stewardship of our finances. It's the elephant in the room. It's something we don't want to talk about. Ah, can we talk about something else? Can I just try to make sure that I serve in this way and that and the money? Oh, don't worry about the money. But the Israelites back then well, Malachi picks an illustration of their spiritual defection that is visible and undeniable. It's through their pocketbook. They weren't giving. They didn't trust God with their finances. And you know, all of it's God's anyways. They were really hurting themselves, not only by not bringing money to the temple, uh, and it, it, it hurt themselves, but it hurt the priests, the proper function of the worship. Even the poor were given money through this. And in the end... They missed out on the blessings that God had promised them. 
they basically abandoned their covenantal obligation to offer their lives and resources to him. It's all his, and everything Israel was blessed with, even their lives, were lent to them for a time to bless others and honor God. And, and so how is that for us today? How does that communicate to us? Many of us here find it very difficult to offer. And we're not talking about a certain percent. For Israelites, it was 10%. If you didn't know, 10% was of all their production, their crops and their herds. And in the Old Testament, they were supposed to bring that to the temple for sacrifice and for worship. Christians don't have a temple today, nor do we sacrifice in the way the Israelites did. However, the New Testament does affirm the, the heart behind tithing, that we put God first in our finances. Why hold anything back for all that he's done for us? 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. To skimp on this is to rob the king. Where we put our money says a lot about our allegiance, doesn't it? Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The king is coming. Let us prepare to meet him by being faithful stewards of our finances. In this way, we honor him. And, and I can say something to this. It's difficult for, for me. I'm a public school teacher, and uh, I know you don't consider them the richest of the rich, right? Uh, my wife and I, we have three children. I'm going to seminary. There are times when money is very tight, and, and, I, and I struggle with this myself. I say, ah, today we'll give so much. My heart's not there, and I, and I pull back for myself. But I realize that as we give, and we don't give out of our extra, our excess, we give because it's God's, and he is faithful. And up to this point, and I have no doubt he's not going to change things, he's always provided for us. Compared to other nations in the world, we are rich. We give because God loves us, and it's his alone. And he's going to bless us with it. So, my final point. Number four. We should be cultivating lives marked by gratitude and rejoicing. That's how we prepare for the coming king. Not of complaint and apathy towards service. We learn this by looking at two groups. Malachi looks at two groups of people. And their response to God are in drastically different ways. So let's look at that. Verses 13 through 15. Starting with verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The first group are the unfaithful, right? Neither fear nor serve God. The first group even denies they've even spoken harshly of him. With audacity, they ask, uh, who, us? Talk about God. How have we trash-talked you? I don't get it. You must be talking about somebody else. They're arrogant and they're disobedient. They said following God's laws brought no rewards. And that it was pointless and boring to come to church, <laughs> to the temple worship. They were tired of it. Oh my gosh, day in and day out, they lost their love of God. 
That was in verse 15. Verse 15, they, they were so arrogant, they said, blessed are the evildoers because they're rewarded. Their cynicism to serving God led to the hollow ceremonial acts that to no surprise seemed to weary the people, not to mention God himself. Their love for God was a cold and transactional thing at best. So what's that for us? I ask you, how is your worship to God these days? Is it on life support? Are you just mailing it in, going through the motions? Has the joy of lifting up his name and serving him on Sundays fallen flat? If so, I'd suggest we look at the second group and their response to God. And that's in verses 16 through 17. Verse 16, then, that's a turnaround here, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, and they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. The second group, unlike the first, are the faithful. They do fear, and they serve God. These guys responded correctly to Malachi's warnings, right? I would liken that their conversations with one another, if you could overhear them, were ones of encouragement with one another. They lifted one another up in difficult times. And that whatever God, through his sovereign will, brought through their way in their life, they trusted his goodness and promises, and they talked about that with one another even when they did suffer. I'd like to think that in their talk, hope replaced despair and truth replaced error. They spent their time praising God and finding joy in serving one another. Could God say that about us here at Grace Community Church? And you know God loves to eavesdrop on his children. And if you look in verse 16, he, he overheard them. I remember when our children were born going into the room, it was such a joy just to see them breathe. And I take joy and pleasure in my children. Their little chest would rise and fall, rise and fall with every breath. And they, nothing they could do could, could be wrong. And as they got older, they learned to talk, and boy, did they talk. Sometime that conversation wasn't all the best, right? But there were times when they, they enjoyed what they heard on Sunday mornings from their teachers here at Grace, and they would say stuff and talk about the stories. And you'd hear that a little bit. Or they were encouraging and they weren't wailing on each other or, you know, picking fights or saying something, something bad. And as they got older, you know, boy, I got two-thirds of my children are teenagers now, so you can imagine the conversations aren't all that holy necessarily or righteous, but they do. They do. And it's when those times that I really listen and I'm grateful and they praise their mom or their dad about this or that. I think that's kind of what God is saying, right? I'm listening to you guys. Are you complaining and being bitter? Or are you talking about how good I am day in and day out? These guys also feared the Lord. It says it twice in that verse. He pays attention to them because he's pleased with what he's heard. Why? Because they are his people. And they are treasured by him as his children in verse 17. It also says they esteemed his name. To esteem the name means to reckon and deem honorable a name by spending time to know him. Do you spend time in the word? getting to know this king who will return again? Because he's come already the first time. He's coming back again. Do you make it a habit of thinking and meditating on the honorable name of God? 
Verse 16 says their names were written in a book of remembrance. A book of remembrance. Now, the Persians, they had a custom of uh, recording in a book all the honorable deeds done for the king by a person on behalf of the king. Uh, Deeds that should be rewarded in the future time. Maybe you can think of the Persian king Ahasuerus. I think I'm pronouncing it right. I probably butchered it. Ahasuerus. Do you remember it? Back in in, in Esther, how Mordecai did the the good deed for the the king there, and, and his name was written in that book. Is your book written in the name of the king? Is your name, sorry, written in the book of the king? Switch that around a bit. Uh, the point is, look, God does not forget the, for the, the deeds of his children, those that fear and esteem him. This group, unlike the first, are his sons and his daughters who will be spared from the judgment that's alluded to in verses 2 and 5 in chapter 3. Will your name be written in his book? The king of all kings. Once again, the king is coming. Let's prepare ourselves by cultivating lives of gratitude and rejoicing not wasting it in a spirit of complaint and apathy towards service. And then we're at the end, verse 18. Verse 18, let's look at that. It says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Verse 18, all through chapter 4, leaves us with the promise of judgment on the horizon. It's not a fun way to end the Old Testament. What a bummer, right? Judgment. But there it is, and there is no sugarcoating it. There will be a judgment day, but those, listen, those who fear and serve God are not to despair. There is hope. This is a good thing. There is reward when you're with Jesus. Verse 18. At some point, we're all going to clearly see the distinction God makes between those who love and fear him and those who don't. Chapter 4, verse 2, we don't have time for that chapter, but it says that um, we will see God, the, the promises of God, that those who do fear his name will see the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. You see that chapter 4, verse 2. And in some ways, just like the sun, you know when it rises up and you feel the warmth, the rays coming in, how good that feels and how healing that is? I would like to say when the king arrives again, When Jesus comes, that the grace of God through him will arrive to enfold its arms of healing around his faithful followers. All hail Jesus the King, the messenger of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Amen? My friends, the the king is returning, and it could happen at any time. Let's neither be caught unawares nor reject his grace. Let's develop a right fear of the Lord, yeah? Let's repent of our sins and return to God. Let's honor him by being faithful stewards of our finances. And lastly, let us serve him by loving others with an attitude of gratitude and rejoicing for his arrival. Because I firmly believe that that if we take to heart and act on what Scripture is urging us to do, that we're truly going to mirror God's grace and reflect his goodness so that when he, the king, arrives, he will indeed say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. 
to your people, even though we often are so unfaithful to you. May we await with hopeful expectation the assured return of your son, Jesus. We pray that you hear and see us in the act of praising your name and in joyful service to others. Help us to honor you by regular faithfulness with our finances, trusting in your provision. God, we pray not to be bitter and harbor destructive complaints in our hearts, forgetful of all your goodness. Teach us to fear you, for you, Lord, are worthy and worthy to be praised. Amen.